We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 74 of the Spurs Up Show, the best Gamecocks podcast on the internet. We have got a packed show today. We are breaking down National Signing Day 2019, the early signing period. Gamecocks signing a total of 18 commits. We're going to break down the class, talk about our standouts, our sleepers, any additions we see happening up until February. Also, big news for the Spurs Up show. Thomas Floyd has got a new mic and sounds like a completely different human being. We've also got a legendary interview coming up with former Gamecocks running back Corey Boyd that all Gamecock fans are sure to enjoy. So stick around. It's another packed edition of the Spurs Up show. All right, I'm Chris Phillips. He's Thomas Floyd. Tom, like I mentioned in the intro, you've got a new mic, my friend. And like I said in the pre-show, you sound like a completely different human being. So how's it going? I mean, it's always great, especially considering, you know, the new microphone. Patriots took an L this weekend, and my other my weekend has just been full of L's. And then today was actually South Carolina took some dubs in recruiting. So I guess that made up for it a little bit. But. Yeah, you, so you weren't with me last week, obviously, with the, you know, South Carolina had exam week. Everyone's been busy, obviously. So you weren't with me last week. Uh, and, and I almost forgot about the whole mic thing. And you, you came on, and like I said, you, I don't think I've ever heard your voice this clear and you know, I know our fans that listen to us, interact with us, especially on Twitter, because those are the ones that have left us kind of their comments. And even some of our iTunes reviews have left the, uh, you know, t- uh, instead, of, instead of calling you Tommy Hot Takes, thinking about calling you Tommy Static Takes. But, uh, you know, just some, uh, some good stuff. It, it, I'm glad you finally kind of grew up and grew out of it. It's good to have you on the, uh, on the good side now. We can finally hear your – I know Tommy Hot Takes is thrill. That's awesome. I know yeah. we can't wait to hear your takes in full, full HD quality. I'm sure he's here for to hear me as much as he can. <laughs> he hates me the most. Yeah. So yeah, it's funny. You know, we didn't. We don't really have any listener questions this week because everything's going to be revolving around National Signing Day. Uh, but that we did have a voicemail, Tom. I'm not going to play it right now. But we did have a voicemail that I was extremely disappointed you did not get to hear last week. We had a we had a fan of the show call in, basically talking about the Miami Miracle. Um, so that was a whole lot of fun. Like I said, it was unfortunate you didn't get to hear it. Um, oh, whoever it is, I hate you. Just say so you know. <laughs> I think it was the same guy that was dogging you after the uh, the Titans game. So you you oh, definitely got guy. you've got that might be Tommy Hot Takes. We never know. I mean, I have a guess. I have a couple guesses, but can't reveal them on the podcast. 
<laughs> but no, yeah, it's been uh it's it's good to have you back on, man. Overall, it's been it's been interesting, you know, with exam week, things kind of slowed down until Zavell Newton came on and kind of shook the Gamecock world with some of his comments about the Steve Spurrier era, and then this week it's just been all leading up to signing day and. Uh, I'm glad things are, you know, revving back up again. Well, obviously Christmas is on, what, Monday or Tuesday of next week. We'll be previewing the Belk Bowl. But let's get right into it, Tom, with National Signing Day, the early signing period, which, you know, let's just be honest, it really feels like National Signing Day at this point, the, the, the real National Signing Day. Gamecocks signed the majority of their class, I would say. They signed a total of 18 commits. Right now on most services, they're ranked around 21st in the country nationally in recruiting, uh, which is only good enough for 10th in the SEC. So that, that just – that just goes to show you the recruiting level uh, that the SEC is on right now. But, Tom, uh, talk about just kind of your initial thoughts in the class, anything that you saw that you were, you know, surprised with, impressed with, or just your overall thoughts on the recruiting class. Well, obviously, I think it's a good class, and I think everyone's pretty pretty on board with it. It's a pretty good signing class. But overall, I think what jumps off the board the most is obviously the five-star Zach Piggins from Anderson. I think he's going to be a day one in the rotation of defensive line, if not a starter, a guy that's going to be an immediate impact, he'll be here for three years. And he's gone. Then another headliner, a five-star, I would say a five-star recruit in Ryan Holinsky. You know, he comes from California to play football at South Carolina. And then a quarterback at that, that doesn't happen a lot ever. There are some other guys in this class that are really good and I would say underrated, like Cam Smith, Joe Anderson. I mean, I mean they're higher rated, but I think they're better than what they're actually considered you know, nationally. And there are some other guys, too, like a John Dixon or Rodriguez Fenton. Rodriguez Fitton, another guy I like a lot is Vincent Murphy. I mean, there are a lot of good pieces, and where you, you know, where you start to build your program the most is an offensive line, a defensive line, and I think that's what Muschamp's done a really good job with, and hopefully he's going to continue that way. Yeah, that that's the thing that I know Will Muschamp talked about in his kind of signing day presser, if you will, that I'm I'm really happy about is that, you know, for one, I would say that South Carolina addressed a lot of their needs in this class, but the thing that I'm happy about is that this staff, you know, led by Will Muschamp, obviously, but Eric Wolford as well. This staff is very focused on the line of scrimmage. And I don't care what anybody says, you know, about you can have all the skill guys you want on the outside. You can have the best quarterback you want. If you don't have the guys in the trenches, you're not going to win a whole lot of football games in the SEC. It's still about running the football and stopping the run. I mean, we saw what South Carolina's offense was capable of this season with a good offensive line once those skill guys came around. I mean, granted, the run blocking wasn't perfect, but I think the more, you know, Big-time guys you can get in the line of scrimmage. I, I think that is what's going to separate you and put you put you away from the pack. I mean, obviously, you talked about Zach Pickens. He's a guy to me that should come in, contribute immediately, a guy that if not, if not starting, I, I would say be in the rotation. Don't want to set the expectations too high. But, you know, a guy like Zach Pickens, Joseph Anderson on the defensive side, um, those are two guys, again, that I expect to come in and immediately contribute. Uh, Devontae Davis is another one. He's actually been practicing with the team the past two days, what Will Muschamp said. So, obviously, great to already have him on campus. And then a guy – you get a guy like Jalen Nichols, uh, Jakeem Green on the defensive side, again, coming in. Jamar Brown, Mike Fo- – or, excuse me, not Jamar Brown, but Mark Fox. Um, Ja'Kai Moore was the one that announced this morning that was – or, excuse me, yesterday that was, you know, another really, really nice addition. Uh, 66295 coming out of high school is just absolutely absurd for how big he is. But, you know, overall time, again, I, I'm just really glad to see that this staff is committed to recruiting the line of scrimmage because, again, I think it, it, it really comes down to in the SEC, and if you want to win at a big-time level, you, you know, we saw, we saw, I think, what's really good to look at. We saw, especially on the defensive side, 
South Carolina got a measuring stick type of performance or measuring stick type game against Georgia, especially on the defensive line when they got shoved around in the second half. And I think, again, this staff recognizes that you've got to be able to recruit at a high level and sign guys that are able to come in. And you've got to be strong in, in the trenches. And to me, Tom, that, that was, you know, that, that's, that's comforting for me to see that this staff recognizes that that is a position that they need to take care of. And kudos to Eric Wolford, man. I, I don't know how he, you know, there were some extensions and raises announced earlier in the week. And I'm not 100% sure how he didn't get a raise, but definitely a guy that deserves one. And I'm definitely glad he's on the staff as well. Um, you mentioned as well, I mean, getting a blue chip quarterback, you know, anytime to me you can get a five-star recruit and a blue chip quarterback in the same class and they're two different guys, that's pretty – that leads to a pretty successful class. I mean, we, we've talked ad nauseum, ad nauseum about him. You've obviously seen us interact with him on social media. But Ryan Helensky, I mean, what more can you say about the guy? Um, you know, Tom, I, I've had my – my thoughts on Ryan Helensky, I'm obviously very excited as everyone else is. I'm a little, not nervous, but, you know, a guy coming in with that much hype and you just hope that the pressure doesn't get to him and that maybe people don't put unfair expectations on him. But when you're able to go into a state like California and sign a guy like that, um, I think it says a lot about the program that Will Muschamp is building and the type of players that they weren't only just able to get in this class, but that they're, that they're going to be able to get in the future as well when you can recruit like that out of the state. No, I agree. I think it's something that you definitely – want it. you look you know you look going forward into the future with there being like a Mac Brown at UNC now and different co- who just actually flipped Sam Howell from Florida State one of the better quarterbacks wow, in this crazy class. crazy flip yeah I mean it was insane thing about but um I mean yeah they're definitely recruiting well out of state I think for South Carolina to be successful you have to win the state recruiting and you have to do well out of state when it comes to North Carolina and Georgia and Florida and to get a guy like you know, Ryan Helensky, a blue-chip quarterback to come, and his family basically to move to South Carolina to come play for him to come play football there is insane to me. And then you think about, like, maybe landing a guy in Chris Steele, who I don't I don't know if we're going to land him. I think it's doubtful right now. But another guy just to get, you know, into his top five, you know, a five-star cornerback. You don't see that every day. And I think that's something that, you know, when you look at the last staff with Spurrier and them, maybe the reason that they dropped off the most was because of a lack of dedication to recruiting. I think you're not going to see that with Muschamp ever. And that, that's why I say the line of scrimmage, too, because I think they, they obviously dropped off because of lack of recruiting. But definitely I'd say in the line of scrimmage, because I remember specifically being at some South Carolina games in the, you know, the glory years, 2011, 2012. And I remember specifically being, I think it was 2012, the South Carolina-East Carolina game. And it was when they had Jadavion Clowney, Melvin Ingram. I mean, all the studs, all the guys on defensive line couldn't be stopped. But I remember specifically they got up on East Carolina and, you know, games out of reach, they put in their second-team defense, their second-team defensive line. And you could just – I mean, I remember sitting there thinking, like, if our second-team D-line ever has to play, we are in some deep doo-doo. I mean, I don't want to call out any of the guys – I mean, heck, I just say the Dixon brothers. I mean, guys like Cedric Cooper, just guys that there were some guys on that on, on the defensive side on the defensive line that just probably shouldn't have been at an SEC level. And it got to the point where you know that 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 staff didn't stay diligent recruiting the defensive line like they did when they got Clowney and some of these other guys. And you know, 2014 came around, and all of a sudden South Carolina had no pass rush, and which led to them having a terrible defense. So that's just what comforts me about you know. Will Muschamp and Eric Wolfer and those guys being diligent about knowing they need to be strong in the, in, on the line of scrimmage and the trenches. It's a really good thing. I thought the other area, Tom, that South Carolina was able to really address is defensive back. And I, I don't think they're done in that area either. I know some some guys, they've still got – they want to go get Jamie Robinson being the first one that jumps off the page to me. Um, but you land a guy like Cam Smith who 
Uh, Will Muschamp came out today. Uh, you guys probably saw on social media. It was feared that he might have torn his labrum in the Shrine Bowl game, which obviously would have been just – would have fit right in with what's going on with South Carolina right now on the injury front. But he's apparently fine. Everything's good to go. He will play in the Army All-American game on January 5th. But you land a guy like Cam Smith, you get a big commitment this morning from John Dixon, Tom. And you've got to feel good again. It's another area of need. I don't think South Carolina can recruit enough defensive backs at this point. And I think John Dixon and Cam Smith are two guys, especially John Dixon. I don't know how he's a three-star um, defensive back. I mean, Will Muschamp talked very highly of him, saying that he was one of one of the best defensive backs they had at any of their camps. And then, again, Cam Smith, I think it really just – the numbers speak for themselves. You know, again, Muschamp talked today saying that he's a, he's a guy that has NFL-type numbers when it comes to his 40, his vertical – his shuttle, stuff like that. So I, I think South Carolina, you could definitely say as well, it was a very successful class and has been to this point. Because, again, I think they'll add a couple more. But it has been a very successful class at this point in the defensive backfield as well as far as those DBs are concerned. Definitely. I mean, you're on something. Where South Carolina's hurting the most at is what they got the most in recruiting, and that's what you have to do year in and year out. Like you said, John Dixon, a guy that's going to be going to end up having a really successful career at South Carolina, Cam Smith, another guy that – will probably end up getting put in the five-star status or close to it by the end of the recruiting – actual recruiting cycle ends and they go through the U.S. Army All-America game and those camps they have there and stuff like that. But overall, I mean, I think there's every player in the class almost you just have to like and think he's going to contribute at some point in his career, which you can't always say, but it's definitely a good sign going forward if they can keep the trend going that way. Of Every guy in the class seems like he's just going to be an absolute baller. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, man, I see Cam Smith being next year's J.C. Horn. I, I, I really do. I, I mean, just from what I've seen from him on film and um, <clears throat> the way they've talked about him, I mean, he, he's, a, he's a baller for sure. Um, who would you say, Tom, you know, we've talked about some of the bigger guys in this class. Who would you say are some of your sleepers, guys that maybe aren't getting all the hype, maybe some of the three-star guys that you think could come in and maybe do a little bit better in their first year, have, have a little bit bigger of an impact than some are expecting? Uh, I mean, if I had to go to, with two of them, per se, I would say Rodriguez Fenton out of Atlanta, Georgia. He's defensive end. He's going to be playing the buck position for South Carolina, kind of similar in the role that Bryce Nye Williams played. Really good. I mean, has good size, 6'3". I think he's listed as 235 right now, but I assume he gets set up to the 260, 270 range. It, it would be a really good stand-up defensive end for us, a guy that has absolute you – know, for not being the – no, I would say the I won't say the strongest guy in the world, but the heaviest guy in the world, weight wise, has really good power. You know, can absolutely attack the attack tackles and get to the quarterback, which is something that South Carolina needs desperately. And another guy, Derek Boykins out of North Carolina. I don't even think he has a Twitter account, which for a high school. Yeah, that's, that, that that surprised me. I saw when yeah. Gamecock football tweeted out his uh like him signing his papers. They didn't tag a Twitter account. I was like, am I missing something here? Yeah, I mean that's absolutely crazy for a kid not have a Twitter account. And I think that's kind of why some of these South Carolina recruits aren't as I wouldn't say high up, but that's why they don't get so much attention is a lot of times if these kids have clout on Twitter, then it makes the recruiting sites think that they're better. And that's pretty much never the case when it comes to having clout on Twitter equals meaning means you're a good player. But another guy I would say, I mean, Derek Boykins, outside linebacker, going to be playing the Will or – I would say not, yeah, Will or Sam linebacker. I wouldn't really know right now which one for a fact. But has really good speed, good size at 6'1 and 225 for a linebacker out of high school. is really good guy who's probably going to end up contributing next year being in the – I wouldn't say a starter, but he's definitely going to be in the lineup. A guy that 
I like a lot. I think he moves really well and hits, you know, fills the hole, does a lot of good things on defense. And then another guy I will go offensively is Vincent Murphy. Has some of the best footwork I've ever seen for a high school recruit. I mean, weirdly. Of like, course you would go with the offensive lineman guy. I mean, of course, yeah, I mean, go line guru, baby. I wouldn't say guru, but, I mean, I just like the way he moves. He's absolutely – he finishes a lot, which a lot of offensive linemen don't do in high school when he absolutely finishes. Comes from a blue blood program in Thomas – St. Thomas Aquinas, which has the most players in the NFL right now for a high school. But another guy I think this is going to be an absolute beast at South Carolina. Probably going to be a guard or a center, but another guy that I would just say is going to be really, really good once it's said and done. Yeah, a guy for me, he's not really a sleeper, but i tell you what, a guy that I didn't really mention earlier that I'm excited to watch is Kevon Mullins. Uh, Key Mullins, I, I think he's yeah. going to be – he's going to have an opportunity to be the next stud, the next dude at South Carolina. I mean, some of my actual sleepers, um, j- if you want to call Ja'Kai Moore a sleeper, again, I don't know if that would really qualify. Um, I'm, I don't know if he's a sleeper. I'm just intrigued to see what Kevin Harris is going to do. I, I mean, 5'11", 229 coming out of high school. Um, a really big-bodied back. I mean, he was really successful in Hinesville, Georgia. I, I'm just kind of excited because – 40. Four or five. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I'm just excited to see at this point what any incoming South Carolina running back is going to do because, to me, the question just remains, who's going to be the the number one guy? I, I, it's it's a, It's been a maddening experience. I mean, is he going to play next year? He's probably going to get redshirted. Let's be completely honest. You've got all your running backs back. You, you've got Deshaun Fenwick back, who this is for another show, but I, I really hope and think he could become the number one back um, next season. But – I'm, you know, the running back position, it always intrigues me. Obviously, uh, Eric Gray is committing tomorrow, who's a big-time four-star running back out of Tennessee. Gamecocks, I don't think you're going to get him. I think he's pretty much projected to go to Tennessee at this point. But, you know, other than that, I mean, I, you know, the other guys, I'll be completely honest with you, I haven't seen enough of. I mean, I've heard some good things about Jamar Brown. He also went to St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, so, you know, obviously a good program. Um but other than that, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I've heard good things also about Devontae Davis. So some of these Juco guys, I think, can come in and help immediately. One thing, Tom, I wanted to talk about was, you know, last year, I think it was Maxwell Ayama. He's from Tennessee, correct? Is, is he the one from Tennessee from last year? Uh, Yeah, I think yeah, so. I think he's from Tennessee. And South Carolina was able to go back into Tennessee this season and get Joseph Anderson and Key Mullins. Not, I mean, they've been able to go in Tennessee and get some pretty high-profile recruits uh, and commits, you know, again, Joseph Anderson, Key Mullins are two, two of the highest-rated South Carolina commits for this cycle for this class. Um, how big of an impact do you think it is that they're able to? Again, we talk about the state of South Carolina, and Will Muschamp made a really good point today. They offered, I think you said they they have offered four I don't know, and got four. they offered four and got four. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, they offered four and got four out of the state of South Carolina, but they were, you know, I thought the South Carolina was really able to get out of the state and do pretty well. And I think Tennessee is an area that. You know, we give Bobby Bentley some flack at the running backs coach position, but I, you know, from what I've heard, that's sort of his territory. And I think they're getting a lot better um, recruiting in the state of Tennessee than they've ever been. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're right. I don't think there's anywhere else to put it. And you look at a guy like you said before, and, um, guys, names give my head right now. Joe Anderson, a guy coming out of near Memphis, Tennessee. I couldn't think of his name for a second, but I mean, not. Joe Anderson, Kevion Mullins, both guys from the heart of Tennessee who say, you know what, I don't want to go to Tennessee, I want to go to South Carolina. And that, that's a lot. It speaks to how good you're recruiting in those areas. And both of those guys are going to be really impact players. I mean, you get Joe Anderson over Tennessee and Notre Dame. I mean, Notre Dame's a really good program that constantly is putting out an NFL talent. Kevion Mullins, you get him to flip from Memphis where he's this college, he's, his hometown is, you know, he's from there. 
think that's you're doing really well for your program. And even to get a guy so late in the process and Eric Gray to take an official visit out of nowhere, nobody even expected yeah. him to see South Carolina, get him to come do that. I mean, it speaks to what you're doing in your program. And I think South Carolina, it doesn't even seem – it seems everywhere out of state now that surrounds South Carolina, we're doing good in right now. And you're going to have to keep going and trending in that direction, even though there's, you know, a guy like Mac Brown at UNC now and, you know, Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee and doing well in Georgia is going to is being hard is going to be hard too just because of how well Curry Smart's been recruiting but you know certain tactics they use in South Carolina maybe doesn't use kind of helps in that not going to say anything mm. specific but we know <laughs> what I'm talking about but I mean overall we've done really well out of state and done really well in Tennessee this year yeah no I I 100% agree with you um real quick you know because South, South Carolina right now like I said sits at 22nd ranked overall nationally um, and we look in the SEC. I've got it pulled up. We look in the SEC. I think they're right at 10th. Yeah, they're right at 10th. But one thing that's been talked about a good bit on social media, at least, the social media range, and, Tom, you'll probably know a lot more about this than me, is the overall composite ranking. Instead of looking at the rank, looking at the composite ranking. When you look at South Carolina's, um, you know, they're 89.06, which is ahead of Arkansas, who's ahead of them, who has 27 commits. And Mississippi yeah. State, who's got 22 so South Carolina right now is looking at being they right at eighth, right behind Tennessee, Florida, Auburn, LSU, AM, Georgia, Alabama. Um, you know, how do you how do you grade this class? Because you know, Will Muschamp, <clears throat> excuse me, Will Muschamp always talks about, you know, we'll know how good this class is three, four years down the road. And I hundred percent agree with him. You know, you'll never know how good the class is gonna be until they get on the field, they get in front of eighty thousand, hundred thousand people and you know, show what they can do on the field on the collegiate level. But if you had to project, you know, and, and actually we'll save the projections next question, but if you had to compare or stack this class up against the rest of the SEC, do you think that the rankings at all get blown out of proportion as far as, oh, gosh, South Carolina's 10th in the SEC in recruiting ranking, but then the composite ranking is 89, which will put them at 8th, which is behind, you know, obviously some really good programs. And, I mean, they're barely behind, you know, a Tennessee, Florida, et cetera. How much stock do you put into that as far as the national ranking, the SEC ranking, stuff like that? I mean, honestly, who cares at this point? Florida State's put out some of the best classes in the nation year in, year out in the ACC, except for maybe Clemson, and we know how garbage well, they are. I actually, these- I actually saw a stat, Tom, before we came on, that I think Florida State has had a higher recruiting class ranking than Clemson every year except 2018. Since 2012, yeah. since 2012. And, and, who, and how the much score of that Clemson game last year, Clemson State won by like 50. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of what goes on with that kind of stuff has to do with the name of the program that the, the kid's recruiting by and what school he commits to. When kids get committed or get recruited by Alabama, they're going to go up in rankings. I don't really understand why. I mean, obviously, you know, Alabama has a thing with having really good players and having a really good program, so maybe it kind of makes sense. But when – if Ryan Holinsky was committed to Stanford right now, are you? He'd be a five star, no question. He'd be a, he'd be a five star top twenty five player, but because he's committed to South Carolina, he doesn't get the respect. And I don't really understand it. And I don't get why they're basing where they're committed to as a reason to not rank them higher or lower. But I don't, I don't really understand it. I mean, when you look at the kids in this class, do you like the kids? Do you think they're really good ball players compared to their compared to their film and what they've done against other players at big camps like in the Nike opening and stuff like that. I mean, I like all these guys, so I don't really understand. I mean, I could, I would say they're top five, in my opinion, when it comes in terms of quality over quantity. I, would you rather have 18 guys like we have right now? Or I think at 18 guys we have right now, they're all very quality players compared to 
like 27 for Arkansas when you might only have five to eight of them are going to end up being really good players at SEC level? What would you rather have? Yeah, exactly. You make a really good point. I I think the thing – and this is more so going off on a tangent about some of the fan reaction I've seen on social media with people that – listen, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. I'm not a recruiting diehard like some of you may be. I'm not – someone that's following the decisions of kids in 2020 and 2021 and following their official visits and their letters and all that good stuff. I just, it's maddening to me. I think it's crazy, but you know, with the, it is funny because I, I never really understood how political recruiting is. I mean, like you're saying, like with the, the team rankings and the star rankings of where a kid goes, I mean, it, who, who offers a kid, right? I mean, it, because think you think about it, these, these guys that are the recruiting experts, quote unquote, yeah, they can go watch a guy at a camp, but I mean, I feel like they get a lot of their information by, oh, did Alabama offer him? He's a five, he, he's probably a four or five star then. Yeah. I mean, that, that's just kind of how it works, right? So, I mean, um, I think the one thing, too, that South Carolina fans shouldn't forget is that um, Gamecock signed 18, but two of their current players on their roster apply to this class or count for this class, and that's yeah. Jamel Cook, who's a five star safety, and Josh Belk, who's a five star defensive tackle. So, you know, imagine if South Carolina had three five-stars on the board right now with, along with those four four-stars. I think we'd be talking about this class a little bit differently. And not that we're talking about it in a bad way, but you can imagine the way we'd be, ta- we'd be talking about this class if it was three five-stars. I don't think South Carolina's ever signed multiple five-stars in a recruiting class. So, um, you can only imagine. Then, again, kind of getting off on a different subject, but – getting a guy like Javon Kinlaw to come back to school. I mean, that's yeah, like, I mean, that's a that's like adding a four-star. Yeah, that's like adding a five-star recruit to your recruiting class. So, yeah. Um, I mean, imagine I think, getting Brian Edwards to come back at this point. Like, right. It's almost it, like adding a five-star transfer in. Almost. Yeah, and, and this is my thing with recruiting, too, is that, you know, people people have a ton of opinions on the recruiting classes. You know, you know oh, my God. Like, here's the thing. South Carolina's best run ever in school history was 2010 to 2013. I think our buddy Rob Prophet, friend of the show, tweeted it out. Um, I think the recruiting rankings, those maybe the three years prior or something were like 19th, 12th, and 15th. Basically, long story short, the Steve Spurrier era, even when Steve Spurrier was the head coach at South Carolina, South Carolina was never top five recruiting. They were never, never really even top 10. I think that maybe they had one year they were the sixth ranked class, but other than that, it was 10 to 15. Even 15, I mean, 20. So, think about it. And those classes like that that you say are so low ranked, there were a couple guys every year like a DJ Swearinger that were just absolute ballers. Even and was he, was he a three-star? He was a three-star. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, like, you think about like that, <laughs> and you have a guy like Kevin Harris who's a three-star running back. Like, maybe he turns into – I want, I mean, you can't really say that DJ Swearinger. Maybe he turns into a DJ Swearinger level running back for South Carolina because he's the Georgia 5A player of the year, but he's a mid-three-star recruit, and he's he's – Six foot, 225, and runs a 40 yard dash and does really well to be a five. Apparently, his team is kind of trash, is what I've read up on. So, for him to be the 5A player of the year means a lot. Yeah, here's the thing I'm not, I'm not sitting here trying to bash. Like, you know, if you're, you know, if you're uh, Bama, Georgia, A&M, and you're LSU, whoever, if you're top five, 10 in the country, and recruit, you should be happy. I'm not, I mean, listen. There's a reason Alabama's as good as they are. There's a reason Georgia's got the level they are. There's a reason Clemson's got the level they are. They recruited a high level. But I'm just not going to sit here and accept that people want to say that I, – I, I guess, Tom, what I'm getting to is I think South Carolina can compete for the East with the type of players they get. It's a different game for South Carolina. You're, you're not going to be able to get the guys or at least all the guys that 
okay, they're a no-brainer. They're going to come in. They're going to play, period, point blank. South Carolina, it's always been this way. We're going to get the guys that – you know, we're going to get some high-quality guys. What Will Muschamp's doing on the recruiting trail should not be slept on in any type of way. Getting a five-star defensive end, getting, you know, a blue-chip quarterback out of California. I mean, getting doing stuff like that, what he's doing on the recruiting trail, he's getting the guys that I think South Carolina needs. But what the thing that Will Muschamp said a lot today in his, his presser, his recruiting <clears> – <throat> excuse me, National Signing Day presser that I thought was telling is – upside he kept talking about this guy has a ton of upside this guy has a ton of upside he's got an extremely extreme amount of upside and what he's talking about in that is that the guys that have upside here's the thing I wouldn't say Zach Pickens has upside he is ready to contribute immediately a guy like a Rodriguez Fitton for example he may not contribute a ton immediately but he has a ton of upside in the sense that he can be developed into a really really good player and for South Carolina at this point until you, I think, start beating – first, you got to beat Kentucky and Texas A&M more consistently. And then you got to start at least every other year beating Clemson and Georgia to get the recruits to believe, all right, they're really competing with these guys. They're on the same level with these guys even, uh, and they just need me. I'm the missing piece. I'm that five-star that needs to come there. But right now, I think the biggest thing for South Carolina, especially with these three stars, again, him talking about, you know, reaching their potential and, you know, tapping into – um, you know, into their potential is just South Carolina is going to have to develop. They're going to be really good at developing players. And again, I'm not saying that in a way that's knocking any of the recruits that South Carolina signed, but <clears throat> these fans that freak out over South Carolina didn't sign 25 stars and, you know, this and that, there are three to four teams every year that recruit at the type of level you're talking about. And like, like you were saying, Tom, with the politics and recruiting, this is what I've always believed. I mean, how much better really is the fifth-ranked class than the 10th rank? What yeah, about the 10th I mean, rank to the 15th, the 15th? I mean, is it really – like, the, the margins we're talking about are so small. I just – you're not going to sit here and – I'm not going to sit here and feel bad over South Carolina's recruiting class, basically what I'm trying to say. Because there have been some people I've talked to today that have been kind of wishy-washy about it. You know, obviously, it, yeah, it sucks to not get a guy like a Tyron Hopper who you thought you had a chance to flip. It sucks to not get a guy like – you're probably not going to get Chris Steele, who it sounds like. I, I have no clue what that kid's thinking right now. But, he, heck, he might go to Florida. He might go back to the West Coast of Southern Cal. He might go to Oklahoma. You know, so it's funny with, with Chris Steele, Tom, because I feel like at some point, it's like one day, South Carolina fans, it's like, oh, we're 100% getting him. No doubt he's coming to South Carolina. The next day, it's like we have no chance. It, yeah. His recruitment, I, I think that's why everybody's just so ready for him to announce because it's like, Nobody has any clue where he's going. It's like, let's just get it over with. Let's get the drama over with. But, you know, either way, I just think for this class, South Carolina did what it needed to do as far as addressing a ton of issues, a ton of need areas. And, again, I'm just so glad that – and another thing people aren't thinking about as well, when you recruit heavily on the line of scrimmage, you're most likely – that's not going to be your highest-rated class. You're not getting these five-star playmakers, these big-time wide receivers. like. I mean, it's just it's just natural that you know guys. In the, you know, Tom, guys on the line of scrimmage, they just don't get as much credit as they deserve, especially offensive linemen. I mean, a guy like yeah. you know, some of these guys at South Carolina signed, um, you know, on the offensive line, definitely are probably not getting the credit they deserve. I mean, the stuff that I've heard about Jakai Moore, I'm like, it sounds like a no brainer. He's a four star guy. I mean, what are you talking about? I, mean, I see he's a three star. So I never feel like those guys are as highly rated as the skill position players. Um, and anytime you sign a class again that is as heavy on the line of scrimmage as South Carolina's was, 
it's going to be where it is. But again, I know I rambled for a bit on that. I'm not disappointed with the class. I think I'm just trying to talk people that are kind of off the ledge a little bit. I mean, even when South Carolina was having their best seasons ever in school history, winning 11 games a season, they were not recruiting at a top five level. And I, I just don't think I'm not a believer, Tom, that that's what it's all about. I think that recruiting is a big thing. Recruiting is the lifeblood of college football, but you got to have a coach in there that can develop. And with South Carolina extending guys like Brian McClendon and Dan Werner and Travaris Robinson being on staff still, I think South Carolina's got the coaching staff in place to they're able to recruit guys that they don't just have to go get the guy everybody wants. They need to get the guy that fits their mold and fits their system and is a guy that's going to come in. They're going to be able to coach up and make sure he flourishes in what they're trying to do. Well, the biggest thing I can say, and I think anyone will identify with or understand what I'm saying here, and that the stars don't matter once you strap the pads up. I mean, a guy can be exactly. a five-star number one recruit in the nation, but – if he's uh, basically a, a – I want to say he's a B-word whenever the pads come prima on. Prima donna. He's a prima matter. donna. I mean, look at Quilberius Crouch. I think that guy's going to flop so hard just because he's the biggest JJ that's going to be ever walking through <laughs> any school. I mean, just based off of what he said, he doesn't want to take hits and he won't split a linebacker. How does that make any sense? I don't I don't get that. I don't understand it. I'd rather take a guy in like Jamar – Jamar Brown. Is that how you say his name, Jamar Brown? Yeah, Jamar, yeah, Brown. Jamar, yeah, Jamar Brown. Brown. I'd rather take Jamar Brown any day of the week over Quilverius Crouch, if he's just going to want to be a little B-I-T-C-H about taking hits. I mean, there's nothing else to it. And, or Kevin Harris running so, back. Hold on. So, that's – I did not know that. Quay Crouch said that. He, he said he didn't want to take hits. Yeah, he basically said that he didn't want to have to take the hits on his body by playing running back in the SEC. So, that's oh, why he's playing linebacker. Goodness. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know but that. That is – that's probably not the best thing to say on your uh, – yeah. On, <laughs> that's not verbatim what he said, but that's right, right, right. Like, even even to any even if you're spinning that, it's like that probably isn't what you want to say. Um not his best idea in the world. Yeah. So I mean overall the class, I mean, I, I definitely think again, there's gonna be three, four, five guys I think can come in and contribute immediately. And I think there's gonna be some sleepers in this class that can contribute. You know, I think there's four, five, six guys that are gonna contribute down the road. And like we said, Tom before, I think me and you had this this conversation off the air that there's going to be three, four, five duds in every class. I mean, if, yeah. if I you mean, get through every class and two thirds of those guys contribute, you'll take it. You know, it's just, that's recruiting. That's kind of, yeah. that's how it goes. But, um, you know, obviously this is the early signing period. That's the funny thing. I feel like I definitely forgot today because it feels like everybody now is signing on the early signing day. There is the, the actual signing day in February. Um, and, and Will Muschamp talked about they're going to try to add three to four more. They want to add another defensive lineman, a couple defensive backs. Um, who would you say is left that South Carolina is pursuing right now that, you know, South Carolina fans should um, keep an eye on? I know Ja'Shawn Sheffield is no longer available. He actually signed with Auburn, which is a complete mind blown because he, actually, he said literally I think two days ago he was waiting until February to sign his letter of intent and he actually signs Auburn. But anyways, Tom, who do you think are some guys that South Carolina fans should keep their eye on as far as guys that uh, that South Carolina could sign late? Uh, Jamie Robinson's a four-star safety out of Georgia. I think he just took an OV to um, Kentucky. He's got to keep an eye on. Shiloh Sanders, uh, Deion Sanders' son, I think would be a huge name and just to have Deion Sanders on the sideline at South Carolina games would be probably pretty huge in my opinion when it comes to recruiting and being in the limelight and social media. But both of those guys are both DBs that could come in and play, you know, give, get some snaps to South Carolina at least. Other than that, off the top of my head, I really can't say anybody to just keep an eye on. But, I mean, they're going to sign three or four more guys. There's no right. doubt in that. What about I mean, Jaquez Sorrells? What about – have we heard – um, is he going to qualify? 
he's – I mean, no one really knows right now academically whether or not he's going to qualify. They're waiting until their late signing day to see where his grades really are. But, I mean, if he could sign, that'd be huge. He's a really – he moves really well to be a D tackle and has the size – and to have the size that he has, he moves really well too. But um, if he can sign, then I would take him. If he, he needs a gray shirt – not a gray shirt year. If he needs an academic red shirt year, then I'm fine with that. We definitely would take him. He's a guy that would be able to contribute really well. It always blows my mind, these guys that can't, just can't qualify, man. I'm not trying to make light of it, obviously, because some kids just don't do well in school. And, I mean, hell, I wasn't the perfect student. But, man, it just seems like there's every resource there for you and you know what's right in front of you if you just take care of business. And it just it happens every year, man. I, and the thing that kills me is I know you don't know when you're recruiting them, I guess, two, three years ahead in advance, but – I just feel like, how do the coaches not know? Like, hey, this kid's probably not going to qualify. Like, I, uh, just... I mean, you offer them and you, you kind of just offer them based off their tape, and then you kind of have to go off the athletic yeah, stuff. Digging, unless right? you're like a stand, unless you're like a Stanford, and they have to get into the school before they can actually offer them, which South Carolina doesn't do, and it's really hard to recruit at a high. Like, I don't get how Stanford is so good every year when they can only, when you know, there's 200 kids that can play at the level Stanford wants, and 50 of them are probably get to Stanford and then you got to get 25 of those guys that's pretty hard to do but I don't know I mean I don't I mean I feel like if you're a, a division one recruit especially recruiting the SEC you should be able to figure out your academics well enough to get in the school in the some school somewhere but maybe some of those kids don't take it seriously well, they do know. they do play in the Pac-12 so I you know I, I mean I, I'm I'm not a guy who pumps his chest and says oh I'm you know I'm definitely not an SEC fan I hope everybody in the SEC loses I don't care but I mean, you have to just admit what you're seeing. I mean, 11 of the 14 SEC teams in the top 25 in recruiting, I think the second most for any conference was five. So, I mean, I mean, what other conference can you have the class? What other conference can you be 21st in the country in recruiting and you're 10th in your own conference? I mean, I, I think I talked to a buddy Monday. He yeah, said South Carolina would be at worst third in any other conference with their recruiting class. I mean, it's just – it's nuts, man. It's absolutely nuts. So, but yeah. – Again, overall, just wrapping up, uh, I, I'm, you know, I know you, you, I can speak for you as well, Tommy. I, I think this is a good class. I think Will Muschamp and his staff did a really good job. Um, you know, I'm, one thing I'm really happy about again today, there was really no dramatics, but getting John Dixon out of Tampa, Florida, a guy that, you know, it, anytime you can go into Florida and get a guy that Miami or Florida or Florida State wants and you can get them to come to South Carolina, that's a big-time signing in my opinion. Yeah. So, um but overall, Tom, any, you know, I think we're going to go ahead and cut this one, put a pin in this episode. Uh, not quite as long as our normal, but really just wanted to break down the recruiting class, come to you guys, break everything down. Tom, any last thoughts on the recruiting class, anything we may have missed as far as who South Carolina may be signing in February, any of your last, just kind of last impressions of what uh, the champion staff did? I mean, not really like much. Oh, well, I mean, Jakeem Green, we didn't really say anything about him. Yeah, a guy that is absolutely filthy at uh, – Highland Community College in Kansas. I mean, I don't know whether or not he's going to sign academically. Nobody really has an idea yet. But if he ends up getting on campus, he's going to be a guy who's going to be a really good football player in South Carolina. Taquan Johnson had to spend a year at prep school to get his grades up. Not a really a big deal there. A 6'3 receiver, you'll take those every day. Of the big body, yeah, big body guy. I mean, both of those guys probably end up being pretty good contributors to South Carolina. But um, other than that, not really. Like Muschamp said, we'll see about this class in about three years how good they are. Yeah, like I said, I, I'm I'm happy with the class. I think South Carolina really did address some needs that they needed to uh, take care of, especially in the line of scrimmage. So I'm happy about that. And 
like you said, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how good they are in three, four years. I have a really good feeling that a guy like a Zach Pickens, a Joseph Anderson, a, a Cam Smith, a Ryan Alinsky, you know, those top guys, you have to have a really good feeling they're going to have pretty pretty good careers in Garnet and Black, you know. Definitely. Barring any type of crazy injury or anything like that, knock on wood. But, yeah, other than that, I mean, I think I think that's pretty much it. Do we have anything? I know South Carolina's playing Virginia in basketball right now. I don't even have the score pulled up on that. That's that's how committed we are to the show, guys. We don't even have the score pulled up. I'm just I'm I'm straight up paying attention to uh to what we're doing here. The task at hand, um, if you will. I'm trying to pull up the score. I'm not sure. Uh we we can definitely recap it next week. But overall, South Carolina basketball in full swing. Um, you know, check that out. Um, if you haven't checked this out yet, this show is brought to you by SeatGeek. I've been absolutely terrible with these ad reads, um, not doing them quite enough. But if you're still listening to this point, go download the SeatGeek app. Use the promo code SPURSUP for $20 off your first purchase. And the interview coming up right now, the Corey Boyd interview, former Gamecocks running back Corey Boyd, sat down with me. He's an absolutely legendary human being. We had an absolutely legendary conversation just talking about his upbringing, his career at USC, um, all the, I mean, a guy that I've never heard of somebody face as much adversity as this guy has and overcome it in the way that he has and, you know, how close he is with his faith and what he's doing for the kids as far as being a running backs coach and everything like that. Fantastic interview. But the interview is brought to you by our friends over at SeatGeek. Go download the SeatGeek app and use the promo code SPURSUP for $20 off your first purchase. We've got a ton coming up, obviously. College basketball is in full swing. The Belt Bowl is coming up. NBA, NFL playoffs are coming up. There's a bunch of concerts. I know tours were just announced, uh, comedy club events. Anything that has tickets, you can use it for. They've actually got a great rating system um, where they rate the tickets from the red meter to where you know it's a really terrible deal, you're probably paying too much, to the green meter where you're getting a real steal, so you better buy those tickets. Um, Again, it's the only ticket-buying app that I use. I actually used SeatGeek earlier today to buy my tickets for the South Carolina Clemson basketball game that's upcoming this Saturday. So go download SeatGeek, use the promo code SPURSUP, S-P-U-R-S-U-P, for $20 off your first order. And if you've already got an account and you're saying, Chris, how can I save $20 on my Belt Bowl tickets? Well, you're in luck. If you've got the SeatGeek app already or if you don't, download the SeatGeek app. Create a new account with a new email. If you don't have a new email, just go create one. It takes five minutes. But create a new account with a new email. Use that promo code, spurs up your first purchase, $20 off. If you don't use it at this point, Tom, I think for your Belt Bowl tickets, you just don't like saving money, which – I don't think anybody that listens to this show doesn't like saving money. Nobody that I know, at least. So use that promo code Spurs up with SeatGeek. Get your tickets. Um, other than that, yeah, I think that's going to do it. Corey Boyd interview coming up. Again, legendary conversation. Uh, we talk, again, everything from his career at USC to what he's doing after football to all the adversity he, he overcame. His life's an incredible story. Um, so we hope you enjoy this interview with former Gamecocks running back Corey Boyd. Appreciate you guys tuning in, and we will catch you next week. All right, joining us today on the Spurs Up show is a very special guest. He rushed for the Gamecocks for 2,267 total yards, his ninth all-time in yards receiving with 1,283. Finished with 28 touchdowns in his four seasons with the Gamecocks, played for South Carolina from 2003 to 2007. Also had a short stint in the professional leagues, which we'll get to. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Corey Boyd, former Gamecocks running back. Corey, again, Appreciate you taking the time, man. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you, and God bless you for having me on. Absolutely. So let's dive right into it. Obviously, you're from Orange, New Jersey, um, which I think is a really interesting story. Just talk about, you know, being from New Jersey, uh, what drew you to come to South Carolina and what ultimately made the decision for you to become a Gamecock? 
on my recruiting journey, uh, I had a great recruiting coach in Dave DeGugliamo, who was a down-to-earth coach who saw talent when he when he can see it. Um, he believed in me and, you know, where I was coming from. He knew of my story coming from the inner city and my challenges. And he didn't shy away from it, you know. He was looking for an athlete like that. And, um, you know, we clicked right from there. And uh, along that journey, you know, we built a good, you know, relationship from coach to player. And he was uh, one to tell me that if I took the chance to come to South Carolina, that not only would I be able to grow as an athlete, I would also be able to grow as a man. So that definitely intrigued me to look a little bit deeper into the University of South Carolina. Now, I won't admit, <laughs> I can't admit, excuse me, that um, at first I didn't know much about the University of South Carolina uh, because I got confused a little bit between uh, Southern California and the <laughs> University of South Carolina. You know, I didn't know that you 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 had to use USC for one and SC for another. So, <laughs> you know, once once I got the color schemes and uh, the mascots and things like that down, you know, it was just a no brainer for me. It was more so taking a visit to see what the school had to offer, and uh, hopefully, whatever the school offered on that visit would be an eye opener to get me to you know choose this school. Absolutely. So I, I wanted to ask you about this too, because I actually pulled up your old, uh, I guess it'd be uh, recruiting profile if you would, and it had you listed as a safety. Did you come in? I guess you probably played on both sides of the ball in high school. Did you get recruited at all as a safety? And was that, did you come into South Carolina as a safety and then convert to running back? Or what, what, was, uh, what was that like? I was actually uh, recruited as an athlete, athlete okay. at that time. Yeah, at that time, you know, being labeled an athlete wasn't as good of a thing because you didn't know what side of the ball they, that you would be able to focus on and actually grow into. Um, but, you know, playing defense was, you know, a specialty of mine. I think I flourished a lot more on the defensive side with all my numbers, um, you know, from playing JV freshman, I believe freshman JV on up, I played varsity. So, um, you know, in my first couple of games in my freshman and my sophomore year, you know, I put up some very impressive numbers as a DB and, and also as a safety. So that kind of put me on the the national scale. I believe I was ranked 21st in the nation, and I believe it was 12th in my state as a DB. But my love was always to play running back. You know, I wanted to show people that I had the moves and you know, that I could be a leader and, and do some special things with the ball in my hand. The only reason why I liked defense was if we were losing or, you know, offense was trying to take control, you know, <laughs> I grew up watching Ed Reed and those guys mm -hmm. and Palomala, so I wanted to make an impact on defense, and that's what made me, you know, uh, shy away a little bit from being a defensive back and at the next level and just choosing running back. Well, I, I will say, not jumping too far ahead, but I think that looking at your running style when you're at South Carolina, I think it definitely makes sense that you played uh, played some defense growing up because you were never one to shy away from contact. I think that's putting it lightly. Um, you know, obviously, similar to our last guest we had on, Savelle Newton, who was uh, a teammate of yours for a little bit, you played for two legendary Hall of Fame head coaches. I want to start with Lou Holtz. 
Um, cause I'm sure that was one thing that, you know, probably drew you to the school was playing for a hall of fame coach like Lou. Um, what, what was your relationship like with Lou Holtz and, you know, what was your relationship like with him, not just on the field, but off the football field as well? Lou was a father figure, you know, a great philosopher. Uh, he will always hold a special place in my heart because he was a fearless old man, but you couldn't tell, um, you know, that he was a small guy. He had a big heart, uh, and he wanted nothing but the best for his athletes, you know. Like I said, on my recruiting visit and on my recruiting journey, you know, he always made it feel like South Carolina would be a home away from home. And we never really sat down and we never really talked about the X's and O's as, as much as we talked about, you know, fatherhood, uh, manhood, and, you know, just being a, a you know, a role model and, and how to grow. And... Uh, when he spoke, it was like, you know, I was I was listening to the Bible <laughs> on audio and, and, you know, the things that he was saying were uh, very captivating and, and, you know, he made us feel that, you know, beyond football, uh, that I will be have an opportunity to grow in South Carolina, be a man. And, uh, you know, that guy was just amazing and, and the way he 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 would word play things and, and that's what I, I truly take away from him as, as a coach, more so uh, than the X's and O's that he brought to the table with me. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and it was funny because Savelle Newton kind of echoed a similar sentiment, just kind of how you're talking about your relationship with Lou Holtz. Um, let's jump right into your freshman season, obviously. 2003, your freshman season. Um, you saw the field a pretty good bit, you know, decent amount, not as much as you would obviously later in your career, but – one thing I want to go to, just one play in general, because I feel like it would be unjust and not bring this up with South Carolina facing Virginia in the Belt Bowl. Um, the hit that you – I know you know what I'm talking about. The hit you had where, um, you know, you meet – I guess you meet the linebacker right at the middle and it's huge collision. Um, and he got he obviously got the worst of it. And it's funny because I feel like that's just such a um, – a popular clip. I know for me, that was one you always watch. And this was kind of before, you know, all the new rules. And I know you'd probably say that, you know, I, I would probably say too, that football has kind of softened up a little bit, but either way, just a really good football play by you. What do you remember about that hit specifically? Anything in general? Cause I mean, it was a heck of a collision for sure. I always say that was my welcome to NCAA hit. <laughs> you know, it was my first bit of contact that I felt, uh, Hey, yeah, I really – I am on a D1 Power 5 school, and, and, and they're going to bring it like this every weekend. So, <laughs> uh, I had tunnel vision. I remember the play was a a, a stretch to the right. Uh, the line blocked perfectly. Uh, as I was pressing the line, I was reading my, my keys, the first play side down lineman to the play side, uh, you know, backside guard – I mean, to the backside guard. And – as I was approaching the line, I just saw a huge hole open up. All I seen was the end zone and, and the, the student section. And, you know, by the time I got to the hole, <laughs> you know, Mr. Davis shot that hole as fast as I shot it. You know, it was like two Rams, you know, meeting at, you know, at their points. And um, we both flew backwards. It was a very loud impact, you know, that could be heard out in the streets that I was heard, <laughs> that I was told, excuse me. But, you know, unfortunately, he wasn't able to get back up and continue playing with his career. And 
um, I guess the fire and that determination or whatever God that, you know, blessed me with, um, you know, it was, it came out at that moment, you know, I felt like Goku, you know, off of Dragon <laughs> Ball Z. I felt like I had a lot of power in me and, you know, I felt like, hey, once that hit, um, you know, took place, I was able to get up and I realized that, you know, I could play at this level and that, you know, the Carolina fans were going to be in for uh, a great, you know, athlete for the next couple of years. Absolutely. So, you know, because of who we talked to last week, I'm really interested to get your take on it from a running back's perspective. Um, not just that first year, but I mean, I'd say all throughout your career, you you probably got to know a lot of quarterbacks in your day. Did, did that ever affect you as far as your game? Who was behind center? Or was that that really didn't matter to you? You were sort of in your own zone doing your thing. I wouldn't, I, I would say it mattered, uh, and more so in my, my junior year, uh, because we had built something from scratch when Spurrier came in and we were, you know, looking for the right key players to be put in the right position. And I don't think that, uh, we had everybody in the right positions, uh, you know, leading up to that. Um, the quarterbacks were, you know, always under major pressure. When we had Lou Holtz, you know, he he wanted them to learn the playbook and learn the game, and and they had enough time to grow, because uh, we had some 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 older leaders uh, at that position with Dondrell Pinkins, and uh, we had Savelle that was you know playing a little wide receiver, a little quarterback. He was playing a little bit of everything at that mm-hmm. time. We had, you know, Blake Mitchell and. And he was young coming in, and we were just learning about, you know, the system. And then, uh, you know, we had our rough time, you know, in, in Lou Holtz last year uh, with with the change of, of coaching. And everybody didn't know where they would go, you know, what was going to happen. Because we knew of Spurrier being a, a – he wanted a pocket-style quarterback. And, um, you know, the the – Mobile quarterback was not something that was big at that time, especially at, you know, at the college level, besides, you know, watching, you know, Michael Vick and them. But um, uh, it was tough for quarterbacks to, you know, get a feel of how they can play in their own game. You know, um, I think Spurrier had a, a, a more set mind on what he wanted from his quarterbacks. And, you know, that kind of stagnated the offense a little bit. But, you know, he knew what he was doing and what he needed to be successful from that position. But as a running back, it never really it never really bothered me. I just always wanted to make sure I knew who I was blocking for and making sure that, you know, his backside was never touched and making sure that we had a good quarterback for all the games of the season and not just, you know, partial of the season. Absolutely. So, I got to ask, the transition, you were part of it, obviously, from Lou Holtz to Steve Spurrier. Um, Again, we had, you know, probably a friend of yours, and uh, we had Savelle Newton on last week who, you know, I really appreciated just being open and honest about – I'm not sure if you saw any of his comments, but he was very honest about uh, how tough the transition was going from one head coach to another. And I'm someone being a former college athlete, actually played college baseball, and I've been through a coaching change as well. After my freshman year, head coach is fired. You kind of go through that entire change. And – you know, it's – I think fans don't maybe understand from the outside perspective, it's not always easy on the guys on the team. You know, it's a complete culture change, and you have a guy sort of coming in wanting to do things his way. But talk about what was your experience like with the transition going from Lou Holtz to Steve Spurrier era? 
And I think all of us had a tough time with that transition because I know that each one of us were promised something different from the Lou Holtz coaching staff. You know, like I said, it wasn't always about the, the X's and O's. It was more so about being able to grow in a university that would love you uh, for putting on that uniform and giving it your all. Um, my transition stage, you know, I think I was my greatest uh, enemy on that. You know, I think the pressures of having to live up to certain expectations always got to me, you know, Um I knew from the Lou Holtz era, he wanted tough, hard-nosed guys that were going to fight it out, you know, all 11 games of the year, plus the, 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 the bowl if we made one. He wanted those type of guys that were going to give effort every single day. And, you know, he wanted us to grow together. Uh, and we grew as a, as a brotherhood. But when that regime left out and we had a, a, I mean, a Steve Spurrier coming in, you know, we only knew of his 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 reputation and how he, uh, you know, relayed to his players, and it wasn't always the 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 positive, most positive things that was heard. But we all understood what level of expectation he was looking for us, and we were looking from him, and we just needed to up our game. And I think learning how to practice at his speed and uh understand their terminologies and what they wanted from us because we weren't you know his recruiting class at all and i think that was a a total um i think that was a knock on uh, uh the lou holtz last recruiting class you know he wasn't i guess how can i say spurrier didn't feel we were were his quality type athletes and, you know, that just put a, a chip on my shoulder to, you know, work harder, go go harder at learning the plays and doing whatever I needed to. But I think the pressures of trying to live up to a perfectionist and someone that had a winning uh, mentality and, and type of uh, uh, career, you know, living up to that, man, you didn't want to be that class or <laughs> that that school that, you know, had his reputation go down and your your school go down with it so mm-hmm. you know I think the pressures of that transition knowing that you're going to be playing for another legendary coach that's a lot more fresher in the fans minds and you know seeing what he had coming from the NFL and what he came from Florida with you know it was a lot of of pressure for all of our players to live up to the expectations of what uh, Spurrier was used to. Right. No, absolutely. So one thing I, you know, I want to ask you about and something I feel like has always been a mystery to me, I'm sure I'm not the only one, uh, is the 2005 season. So I was actually looking back at some old articles today, um, and your 2005 season obviously did not happen. Uh, you were suspended from the team mm-hmm. the entire season, and there really never was a reason given. I mean, I think I saw a quote where Spurrier basically said, you know, Corey's going to be working on himself, which, I mean, is – obviously as vague as any answer you can give. Uh, can you shed on any light as to what happened either in the off season or just, like just before that 2005 season that held you out for that year? As any kid, you know, 17, 18 years old, you're away from home. You feel like you, you can do anything that you want. You don't have to go to class. You don't have to listen to folks, you know, um, like I said, with 
one coach, you know, promising you that you can grow and become a man and, you know, everything will be okay. To now, you know, looking back like, hey, you know, if I make a mistake, you know, are these people still going to believe in me? You know, are they going to send me home? Or, you know, like I said, the pressures, the pressures and, 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 at that time, I dealt with a, a, a little bit of anxiety problems that, you know, I just couldn't, I just couldn't handle the pressures. And, and I, I placed myself in positions that did not reflect the man that I, I knew I, I could be and that my fans needed me to be and my teammates needed me to be, you know, um, you know, made some very immature decisions, you know, by not going to class and not doing what I was supposed to do with workouts and, you know, just, just feeling like I, w- I was better than, <laughs> I was better than what I was, you know, when I, I had more to give to my team as a leader. So he gave me some time to <laughs> literally think about it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, it gave me back my hunger. It gave me back you know, uh, perspective. It, it, and that's why I respect, you know, Spurrier a lot more because he could have gave up on me. He he could have moved on to Mike Davis, who was one of the upcoming, you know, South uh, South Carolina running backs coming in from Columbia High. And, you know, he had some, some good numbers with him, but he, he saw something in me. I don't know what it was. Uh, I'm just grateful that he saw it, you know, and he gave me an opportunity to – have a whole year to get my grades back on, on on point and show the team what type of leader I could be. And, you know, I had to go to practice. I couldn't do – I couldn't come to any games. I couldn't suit up. All I could do was go to class and, and, and show the team and show the, uh, the university how serious I was about being a student athlete. Right. So I'm curious, what was what was that conversation like – coming back and you come back because I mean obviously you responded adversity very well I mean you finished your last two seasons 17 combined touchdowns um what was that conversation like after 2005 did Spurrier because you know you hear the phrase you heard you hear the term doghouse a lot you know he oh he's in the doghouse um was was it ever a scenario where you (laughs) felt like you came back and you were in the doghouse or and you had to get your way out or was it a truly a fresh start with Spurrier what what was that like sort of bouncing back, flushing the 05 season and come back ready to go in 2006? I may be one of of a few that may be able to say that I had a clean start with, with Spurrier. Uh, like I said, I don't know what it was, you know, glory be to God, but, you know, before he even set me down, you know, the the suspension wasn't supposed to be a year-long suspension. A lot of people don't know that. The, the suspension was only supposed to be uh, I was supposed to get a four game suspension, but because, you know, it was my second offense on, you know, not going to class, having academic problems, you know, I was automatically, you know, up for expulsion and, and being kicked out. So he gave me every scenario that could happen. He sent me home for the summer and said, hey, you know, instead of being here, having media in your face and having to ask the questions the whole, the same time, uh, the same way the whole time, you know, why don't you go home, get a fresh look, get around your family, you know, understand why you chose South Carolina, understand why you, you needed a change of environment from where you grew up. You know, he, he 
showed me about myself without putting that, you know, heavy, heavy burden over top of me. And um, like I said, he knew a little bit of my story and, and he had some type of compassion for me. I don't know if, if an angel tapped him on his shoulder and said, this is the one that you really need to look out for. Give him a clean slate. But I'm glad that he did because uh, he told me that once the season began, uh, all I needed to do was, you know, make sure I reported the practice like nothing ever happened. You know, uh, they as a, as a university, they really um, did a, a phenomenal job with, you know, keeping the press out of my face about the situation. Uh, we chalked it up as me having a, a red shirt year. So that was pretty good. You know, it wasn't, I didn't miss anything. You know, I actually gained, you know, another year of eligibility doing, doing that. So, you know, my, my bridge to coming back wasn't as bad, you know, as long as I did my part, he told me that, you know, it wouldn't be held against me, but he did tell me that he had a greater uh, expectation for me as a leader, you know, coming back, he had high expectations, you know, he wanted me to be able to uh, help my coach, which was Robert Gillespie at the time. Um, we were, he was only a couple of years older than I, but, um, you know, I respected him a lot. He was a young up and coming coach under Spurrier and we had a, a room full of young running backs. And I was, I believe the only returning, um, you know, veteran out of that running back group that I could help bring a change. And he wanted to see more of that leadership come out of the room because that's what he was used to from his running backs from Florida and also from the Redskins. Yeah, and you, you talked a little bit earlier about Mike Davis, who you shared a backfield with from 2000. Well, not He was there from 2005 to 2007 with you. Before that, you obviously shared a backfield a little bit with guys like Demetrius Summers, Dacus Terman, some other guys. Um, you know, so it was kind of funny because Spurrier liked to interchange guys in and out. What, what was that like uh, sharing a backfield? Did you ever mind – you know, I don't want to say you weren't the number one guy because I think in 2006 and 2007 especially, I, I would say for certain – you were the number one guy, but you, you, I don't know that you were ever getting all of the carries. Did that ever bother you at all? How did you embrace um, sort of that role? And like you were talking about mentoring maybe some of the other running backs who were younger than you, especially later in your career. Um, <laughs> you you love to pull out the tough questions. <laughs> um, you know, throughout my, my, my ordeal at, you know, running back – for the University of South Carolina, it was never easy. Coming in, I was coming in with one of the best running backs in the state of South Carolina that year with Demetrius Summers. And I know a lot of people were questioning and asking, why would I do that? Why would I go uh, to a university like that? Along with, before that, they had uh, Dackett's Terman, Gonzi Gray, uh, and, and Kenny Irons, you know. It was, the list went on. Yeah, it was the backfield was packed, but to me, I come from an area where if you say you're the best, you're gonna have to show me and, and prove to me that you're the best. And I love challenges. So uh, when I got here, you know, um, it wasn't fair. You know, uh, I, w I was told that I would have an equal opportunity to fight for the starting job as a freshman, and that was, you know, all that was all a kid from the inner city ever wanted to hit. That was my opportunity. And, um, but when I got here, I saw a, a little bit of, 
a little bit of favoritism. I saw a little bit of the the the, the tough side, the business side, the politics side. You know, when as a as an as an athlete away from his family, a young student athlete away from his family, you know, I had to find my way. You know, um, I had to really learn what what competition was going to look like on on so many different levels, not just on the physical but a mental level. Um, and you know, I was grateful that I had a backfield with guys that were hungry, just as hungry as I, but they, I, I want to say they, they, they could sense the leadership in me, you know, from freshman year. Uh, they, they just, the coaching staff and my, my, my counterparts in the backfield, they always pushed me to be that leader because maybe one wasn't able to be a vocal leader, but they would try to you know, show it on the field. And if they couldn't show it on the field, then, you know, they would look to me to bring those, that, that balance. So as, as the years went on, you know, Mike Davis came in and, you know, he had a, a year where he didn't have any, any, any mentorship. I wasn't there to actually, you know, guide him through that, that first year. And, you know, it was a tough year for him. And, and I knew that, in Spurrier's first year, if I would have had that opportunity to play, I believe we would have had an even greater, uh, a greater year. That was the year that we had a, a phenomenal offensive line, the defense. I think that was Cole Simpson's last year. Yep. Um, we had Jonathan Joseph. We had a stacked defense. Our defense in in our in our offense was phenomenal. I think we lacked a, a, a certain element of leadership from the running back position that you know I still hold that over my head that you know if I would have had that one year to be that guy um I think things would have changed for my career and also I would have been able to help the other young running backs develop in a Steve Spurrier system a lot better but unfortunately things didn't go that way and um as my two years uh you know, with him being a full-time, you know, running back, I had to split that time. And it did cause some conflict between not me and Spurrier, but me and my running back coach, you know, Robert Gillespie. Like I said, he was a, a couple of years, you know, older than I. And I saw him more as a brother figure or uncle figure rather than, you know, a coach. And, you know, we we we, we bumped heads, but it was more because we were more similar in our game. And we wanted that from each other as a coach and as a player. Right. And yeah, Corey, I want to talk about your game a little bit. So, you know, it's funny. I got I was looking at your statistics where we came on. It's crazy just how consistent you were. I mean, you got better every year yardage wise, rushing and receiving the football. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I was just looking back, you know, your freshman year, you had four yards per carry average, but literally your sophomore, junior, and senior year, five yards per carry on the dot. Um, touchdown numbers went up every year. You were right at between 10 and 11 yards per catch receiving wise. Um, what do you think, you know, especially the thing that amazes me about it is, you know, how physical you were. You were never a guy bitten with the injury bug. I mean, you played basically every game each season. Talk about what do you think you can attribute to being so versatile and being able to withstand a full season and, you know, being able to improve year after year while staying healthy? Oh, I wouldn't say I was healthy as as much. <laughs> a lot of those years, a lot of those years, you had to. I had to just fight through, and I think that that it it bit me later on in my career as going into being a pro. Um, but to 
to to have the staff that we had that you know harped on a lot of preparation you know uh preparation loves success and success loves preparation i knew that the only way that i was going to be able to be what i could be for the university i had to put it all into to my trainings and that was one thing that i never had a problem with with the trainings because that was like my sanctuary you know the gym making sure that you're taking care of your body making sure that you know, I always felt, and maybe some other people feel this way too, but I, I always felt underrated. For some apparent mm-hmm. reason, I've always felt underrated, and that's what I wanted to strive off of is being consistent, where I knew that uh, when I was growing up, I was told that if a running back can average five yards a carry, then he's an every-down back. Mm-hmm. And if a, if a running back can run a 4.5 in a 40-yard dash, and he he got good feet, good footwork, and, and and he can be the hammer and not the nail, and do that on a consistent basis. You will be able to break the will of your opponent, and you will be able to place yourself at a different you know uh, pedestal than than most. And I said, okay, well, well, I was going to take that approach, and uh, I I. I Wish that I did have a lot more opportunities and touches to to showcase that talent, but I knew that whatever I did get, you know, I had to maximize it. Like I said, I was looking down the down down the down the running back room where I had all Americans and guys that were hungry coming in looking for you know looking for a spot, and I wasn't trying to give up my spot. Not that easy. And uh, I think I, I, I contest all that to, you know, my coaching staff pushing me to be the best that I could have been at that time. Yeah, I was just going to agree with you. I, I definitely think you were underrated, if you will, uh, in your career, especially now, because, you know, I look at the South Carolina football team now, the 2018 team, and there are definitely some capable backs um, in the rotation, but I don't feel like there's that one guy. I definitely don't think – you know, we've seen a running back with your toughness and tenacity since probably, you know, Marcus Lattimore, obviously, we all know what he can do. He, like you put it, he was the hammer, not the nail. There were not many occasions where he was the nail. But take me inside the mind of a Corey Boyd. You're in the backfield. You have the play. What is your thought process? I mean, are you looking to run somebody over? Are you, you know, and, and then second part of that question, what do you feel like your best uh, skill set was? Was it your vision? Was it your physicality? Uh, what do you think made you stood stand out amongst the other running backs? To answer your first question, you know, throughout a, a play, throughout a game, you know, you always want to stay focused on, number one, beating your opponent. And number one, your opponent is you. I always knew that, you know. I could have played to the, the 85,000 that was in the stands and lose it. Or I could, you know – play for myself and, and, and take one play at a time. And that's what I, I, I kind of learned early on in my career as a youngster is that if you can control your emotions, control everything that you've got going on while everybody else is going a thousand miles per hour, you know, that's where your vision will be able to kick in. That's where those other uh, little abilities that God has given you will be able to kick in. So, you know, I was blessed to be, you know, taught at a young age that as a running back, or at any position, there are certain little keys that you need to learn that will slow the game down for you. And that's what I teach my kids today when I'm coaching is that, number one, you have to know what your alignment is, no matter where you are on the field. That that tells you where your awareness is. 
so that you know how much of a centerpiece you are or you're just a piece to a puzzle, you know? So for me, learning about where your alignment is on the field is very crucial. Once you learn that, you can line up as fast as you can and you can always see what your opponent is setting up to do for you, okay? Once you learn your alignment, now you learn what's your assignment. And that's whatever play is being called. You know, you don't want to give away where you're going with it. You want to be able to scan the whole field like you're a robot, but you know where you're going. So you're the actor and the defense has to be the reactors. And if the defense reacts too slowly on what you're doing, then there goes the next part is your technique. Number one is your alignment. Number two is your assignment. And then your number three thing is what's your technique. And that means how you're going to execute it. A lot of times, you know, I knew that we didn't have as great of a line. My line was phenomenal for, for me at that time. <laughs> Let me not say anything bad about them. But for, for the type of line that we needed for being in the SEC, you know, I had to make sure that I had a lot of tools in my box with my technique, making sure that I pressed the hole to, to suck defenses in so that I knew that I was going to make a cutback move and get upfield uh, right now. You know, and the final part of the, uh, the whole thing that kept me together was my, after I learned what technique I was going to use, it was always finish, always be the hammer, never be the nail. That's what I was taught that, hey, man, you could do all the dancing that you want, but at the end of it, if, you're, if, if all else fails, be the hammer, never the nail, get yardage, don't lose yardage. And that's what drove me to, you know, being a better player in that backfield. To answer the second question, you know, um, it, it, it was it, – I, I, I try to follow that same, uh, that same regimen and, and – um, not stepping out of, of, of what I said about, uh, slowing things down. I think that was more so, uh, my favorite, uh, ability on the football field, uh, it being able to slow things down and make the game work for me and know when to apply execution and when not to apply execution. You know, I can say I had the best hands, I loved the catch, or I had the vision, or I had explosion, but it was just having a balanced attack and being able to slow the game down so that it fit for me. Absolutely. So you were drafted in 2008, the NFL draft, seventh round uh, by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Unfortunately, you injured your knee during a rookie minicamp, bounced from Tampa Bay to Denver. Um, you know, again, bounce back and forth with them. And then eventually, you know, you were waived by the Broncos and moved on to the uh, to the CFL. Just sticking to the NFL real quick, your your short NFL career, because I, I, you know, even if it didn't pan out the way you wanted, obviously due to injury, there aren't a whole lot of guys that ever make an NFL roster. Uh, talk about what that was like going from college and getting that NFL experience for uh, a short bit of time. Mm, glory be to God. Glory be to God. That's, 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 <laughs> that whole experience was a journey in itself. Um, it was a blur to me, but I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the business of the NFL and, and the profession of football and that, you know, you have to have the right supporting cast and the right people in order to keep your affairs in order if not you know you would pay a huge penalty and in a, in, in a huge price and you know um going in the seventh round wasn't you know my dream to to do but 
I had that opportunity. I was grateful enough to do it, you know, and unfortunately, you know, my first day of rookie mini camp, you know, I tried to give Corey Boyd the usual 110 where I, I should have learned, like I said, to stick with slowing things down and seeing it and letting it come to me. But, you know, I was just so excited to to prove people wrong and prove, you know, that I, 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 I earned a spot to be in the NFL. And uh, unfortunately, you know, my body didn't, you know, keep up with my mind and my spirit and I think it was a great thing for it to happen because that's why I was able to actually learn more about God, learn more about myself and, and why things, you know, tend to happen uh, in my life and on my journey as they do. And uh, it taught me a lot about, you know, what was next for me, who I was going to be as a man, you know, through college, you know, I made a lot of mistakes and I was able to stand up because I had those fans and I had those teammates uh, and I had the university, but when you get to the NFL, you know, you got to learn the difference between asset and liability. <laughs> and mm. I didn't know completely the game, uh, the, the business side of football. I knew the game side, but the the transition from being, you know, one of the top guys at your school to now being, hey, you're somewhat a number here on our team and you're fighting to be on a number that, that 52-man roster, it was tough, you know, and mm. Um, you know, I had a lot of setbacks with my injury and, and, you know, mentally and spiritually, you know, it, I was, I was taken on a, on an emotional roller coaster, And that's why, you know, I just give glory to God because that's when I really found that I needed some type of stability and a foundation that was way greater than Corey Boyd, the person in, 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 in organization of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the NFL I needed I needed God to help me guide me through the next part of my life if I was going to be anything to you know this next generation yeah and I will say Corey I mean that, that's the one thing I can definitely say that impresses me I think the most about your career and it really came out in your playing style is just your ability to overcome adversity because you know <clears throat> for a lot of people that would have broken them you know you finally kind of see out your dream get to the league you get hurt um, you know, you get weighed by the Broncos March 31st, 2009. You're able to obviously rehab from that knee injury uh, and all your other injuries, and you're able to sign with the uh, the Toronto Argonauts and have a really, what I'd say was a really successful career in the CFL. I mean, you were an all-star all three years, rushed for 2,500 yards, 6.1 yards per carry, you know, 12 touchdowns. You had back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons, over 1,000 yards. Um, you know, talk about your experience in the CFL. I mean, obviously it's it's not the NFL, but I, I don't want people to think anything less of it because those are, you know, those are guys that probably all played at the collegiate level that all have – a lot of those guys do have NFL aspirations. A lot of them do go from CFL to NFL or maybe even from NFL to CFL. So, I mean, talk about your experience in the CFL and what that meant to you to have the type of success you did. Oh, wow. Being in the CFL uh, definitely allowed me to – fulfill a dream and live out a fantasy that, you know, I, I had as a kid, you know, when you think about becoming, you know, a, a leader, an all-star, you know, a, a main staple uh, athlete in, in an organization, you know, in front of thousands and millions of fans, you know, that's what I dreamt of, you know, for the NFL, but it didn't pan out that way. And when I went over to the CFL, 
you know, my career didn't start out, you know, <laughs> on the positive note as well. And there either, you know, I ended up getting a concussion the first day of practice. <laughs> and, you know, I, I that was once again, God testing me to, to see, you know, the lessons that I learned over that time of being in the NFL. Did I learn anything? And, you know, I was put on a medical uh, roster, a medical reserve roster, and they normally don't do that for, for athletes in their first year. And like I said, God must have tapped on, on, on Barker's shoulder <laughs> and the GM shoulder and said, hey, it's something special about this kid. I need his story to be told. You know, so for, for two weeks, you know, I was dealing with the concussion protocol. I was seeing double vision. Um, and I just didn't know where my career was. You know, mentally and spiritually, I was strong, but I was questioning God like, hey, why did you bring me all the way over here to another country for me to <laughs> literally experience the same thing I experienced in the NFL? And um, God, you know, literally, literally said to me in, in, in a dream, I have you. I have you. And uh, in my first game, you know, the team, um, it was the team's last preseason game and they needed to move on with their roster space. And he gave me a... Um, he gave me an opportunity to play one game and, and make the team or, you know, don't play and, and, and move on and allow somebody else to get the position. And uh, fortunately for me, the first game I played as a CFL player, I think I had uh, 20 carries for 150 yards and two touchdowns. And the style of play, you know, the fans loved it. They ate it up. The team saw why I was kept as a rookie and not too many people can you know call themselves a rookie twice as a pro you know so I was a rookie in the NFL it didn't go too well and it was like God gave me a restart to go over to the CFL and in my first year you know um the 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 coach and the team received my story they received my my leadership and uh I was actually named uh, amongst the top four athletes in the league. I was up for MVP league honors my first year. I broke records. Um, but the setback that really threw me into a loop was losing my brother, Kenny uh, McKinley. And, and it just, you know, that and also not being as healthy uh, as I needed to be kind of derailed my career a little bit with the CFL. Um, because of the length of season, you know, we played a 22 game season, um, not including the playoffs <laughs> and not including yeah. uh, preseason. So a lot was put on my body. A lot was put on my mental my first couple of years there and learning how to be a pro with handling even more adversity. Um, you know, that, that, that little friend of mine, adversity always kept calling, you know, while I played in the CFL, but I learned how to be my own agent and I negotiated my own contracts. And, um, ultimately, you know, um, by the tail end of my last contract, you know, I was, um, one known as one of the league's best running backs, but, um, you know, my body started deteriorating a lot more and a lot rapidly than I could have uh, kept it from doing. And, you know, it was just time for me to hang the cleats up and, and find out what was next. But the whole journey from, you know, the NFL to CFL, there was no great change. It was just, uh, you know, the 
stick to the game plan, hard work, get in the gym, preparation, love, success. And, you know, you got to give your all and, you know, build on your dreams one day at a time type thing. And uh, I was grateful to, at the end of my career, be able to stand tall and be able to tell young ones to look at the numbers and look what I've left as a legacy. Absolutely. And I think you've definitely carried that into life. I, I say life after football, but you're definitely still very involved in football. Um, you've obviously had a couple of coaching stints, coaching stops. Um, you're now the founder of uh, CB3 Athletics, uh, which is an elite youth football academy. Just kind of talk about what you've been up to um, since your playing days and specifically the CB3 Athletics. I know you're you're fully involved in doing that. Well, I – you know, always had a dream to give back to the youth and hopefully with what I'm able to give to them, they will be able to have more than I had when I was younger. Um, you know, I do a lot of community work where, you know, I go around to the young kids' homes, making sure that they're doing their homework, make sure that they're doing chores and being respectful to the people that are in their homes and making sure that, you know, these young ones know that there is a coach and, and a mentor outside of their, their parents that care about them. Um, and I also make sure that I'm teaching this game and in trying to give the parents a better understanding of what the process is to be an athlete, a student athlete, um, and not just rely on the coaches so much. You know, I try to inform all parents to do their research and development when it comes to the game of football because it's a it's a changing game you know and we want all kids to be safe in this game and have long prosperous careers because there's a lot of young youth out there that have the same story as a Corey Boyd and you know football is their their key to opening a lot of doors and to getting them where they need to be in life it's their vehicle and, you know, in our program, you know, I, I harp on truly helping kids with development. You know, I don't I don't focus on the exposure uh, because kids will have that time. They will have that time to shine in the light. But the most important thing is to allow our youth to develop on a on the same level as our counterparts in other states at this at, at football, at uh, academics and also spiritually because these are our, our, our future um, leaders and, and we got to make sure that we're pouring a lot into them. So I try to pour as much time and I've dedicated my life to um, just trying to correct my mistakes through these young gentlemen and, and young ladies that I may come across because uh, it takes a village. It truly takes a village. And I'm happy that God has anointed me to have a story and have a testimony and have an idea and a dream to help these kids. Absolutely. Yeah. It's awesome for sure. Um, real quick before I let you go, cause I know I've kept you on pretty long, Corey, last question I'll ask you, um, going back to your college career. Cause again, I, I you know, I'll say, I speak, I think I speak for, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a good bit of South Carolina fans. You were definitely one of my favorite Gamecocks to ever watch. I think you emulated what, a Gamecock is and what a Gamecock should be, someone that, like you said, battles adversity and um, is hard-nosed, is willing to be the hammer, not the nail. You know, a Gamecock, you think of a Gamecock, it, it fights and scratches and claws for what it wants. And for South Carolina Gamecock, I think that's, that's winning, and I can definitely say I think you did that. Um, what was your overall favorite memory um, from the University of South Carolina? 
simple, graduating. Graduating with that degree in my hand, knowing that I, I truly hushed all the naysayers who didn't believe, you know, uh, a young kid coming from 2.2 square miles of, of, of terror and, and betrayal and, 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 and death and drugs and violence and anything imaginable to, to getting that paper and saying, I am smart, I am intelligent, I am loved, I am cared for. You know, those were the best feelings, you know, once I received those things, once I received that thing called a degree in my hand, you know, I knew that skies were the limit and it was only going to be, uh, that was my new key to uh, open up the, the doors in life. You know, football was one that got me here and opened up a lot of doors. But uh, once leaving out with that degree, that was the key to help me open up the world. And I thank the university. I thank. Lou Holtz, Steve Spurrier, the whole administrative staff for believing in a kid that, you know, struggled with belief in himself, you know. Um, the university, you know, didn't owe me anything. They don't owe me anything. You know, I'm just grateful to be one that have been able to put on, you know, that garnet and black jersey and have wore very well and wore it with pride. And, and I'm hoping that you know, um, what I left out there could, could last for years and many years and many generations to come. That's absolutely amazing. All right, so I lied. This is going to be the last question, I promise. But it's funny. <laughs> we, uh, we talked to uh, one of your teammates, one of your former teammates, Mo Brown, um, right before the Carolina-Clemson game. And, you know, he's obviously sharing his best Steve Spurrier stories. And, you know, the thing I thought was really funny is we talked to a good bit of former South Carolina quarterbacks, but he was our first wide receiver we had talked to so we got a, we kind of got some insight into you know how Steve Spurrier was just as hard if not hard on his wide receivers when they were dropping passes or you know whatever it may be was he ever involved in the running back room at all I mean did he kind of leave you guys alone or um, what was that relationship like between you know the running backs and Steve Spurrier Oh man, it was a scary feeling. Um, <laughs> even before he, it was because even before he came in, like I said, we knew of him as a throwing quarterback. I mean, coach. And for me, that's where all of the anxiety even got greater. Cause I'm like, do I just, you know, I know I'm a good receiver. Do I go to receiver? Do I stay in the backfield? Because I want him to see me. I want him to know what type of athlete he has. But when I saw him start coaching them quarterbacks and them wide receivers, and if you dropped the ball or you didn't run the route with precision, how he chews you out, I just knew it wasn't for me. <laughs> I just knew that, you know, the coach that he had assigned to me, Coach Robert Gillespie, even though he was a little bit older than me, I understood, hey, I needed that guy that was going to be a player's coach that was going to talk me through it, be a big brother, be that uncle figure. Uh, and I think – Spurrier allowed him to do that. I think he allowed his running back coach to really grow with his group. And that's what, you know, helped us gel and stay together, no matter if I was in, Mike was in, anybody else, or the, you know, those young guys came in. We were all going to be able to reflect what our running back coach was putting on us. And Robert Gillespie, which is, I believe he's still at uh, North Carolina as the running back coach, you know, he he helped us. He's also the running backs coach who put Alvin Kamara in the uh, football league, NFL league. So 
that coach has been one of the greatest coaches running back wise that I've ever seen. And I think Spurrier did a great job by hiring him. And, and, and he was the one who, who showed us the way and Spurrier left the running back group alone. Lord, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to ask because Mo, he had some uh, very funny, very funny stories where he had called him out. And, you know, you think of the names like Sidney Rice and Kenny McKinley and some of these legendary guys that, Coach Spurrier was not afraid to uh, give a good tongue lashing to. I guess you put it lightly, saying that. Um, oh yeah, well, tongue lashing wasn't wasn't the wasn't that's the understatement. You know, <laughs> you would think the world was coming to an end if you dropped the ball in his <laughs> in his practice or his offense, and don't let the quarterback be off timing with with the wide receivers. Oh Lord, you know you. Oh, I, I feel I feel for. It. I'm I'm so happy that you know, we were able to win as much as we did now when I look back at it. Uh, because, like I said, it was a lot of pressure. Even though the fans get to see the, the, the finished product, mm-hmm. those practices, wow, that, that buildup was something. And, and I, I say Spurrier pulled out the best out of us. Let's say that. He knew how, even with his, his some people call it arrogance, some people call it, you know, just being the old ball coach. I chalk it up to him being the old ball coach. He knew how to to really get up under the skin of his players and actually draw out the best in them. And that's why I always love that man. That's why he's a legend. All right, well, Corey, you know, we really do appreciate the time. Legendary conversation. Um, love what you're doing. Let everybody know, because I know you've got a documentary out as well that uh, I was actually able to watch. Great stuff. Let everybody know where they can find you on social media, where they can find the documentary, where they can check out CB3 Athletics and anything else you're doing. Yes, well, we have currently our media uh, website is uh, CB3 Athletics. Uh, we have the YouTube channel at CB3 Athletics Media. Uh, we also have Facebook, Corey Boyd, or CB3 Athletics. <laughs> uh, on Twitter, it's also Coach Boyd03. And uh, also on Instagram, you can also find Coach Boyd. Absolutely. So, yeah, be sure to go follow him. Check it out. If anybody's listening to this and you've got a uh, – a son who wants to be a running back, send him to Corey Boyd. You can't go wrong there and check out CB3Athletics.com. Again, Corey, um, legendary stuff, man. Really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, let's do it again sometime for sure. No, thank you, guys. You keep me relevant, and, and, and I truly appreciate that. You know, you keep the, the dream alive. Absolutely. Well, again, appreciate Corey Boyd tuning in. For Corey Boyd and Thomas Boyd, I am Chris Phillips. We appreciate you tuning in, and we'll catch you next week on another edition of the Spurs Up Show. Until then, What is it you want to do when you grow up? The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. 
Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.